We turn now to our sermon text in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 28. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with him. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have given us this, your word, and Lord, it reveals true and amazing things about the living God, and also about ourselves. And we know, Lord, this is the end truly of all theology, the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of God, and we pray, Lord, that we would know these things, and that it would do us good, and that we consider well this passage, and that you'd bless it to our eternal benefit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we come to this final portion of Exodus chapter 34. Moses has met with God. He has seen God. He has heard God's face. And he has been up there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. Again, admitted into privileges that no one until that point had of seeing as much as possible the living God. And it would be impossible for Moses to remain unchanged by that experience. People are changed by much lesser experiences. I'm sure you and I can think of things in our own lives, but certainly in stories that we know in our time of people that have been changed indelibly by some extraordinary experience. Well, this was far beyond the scope of anything like that. And so in point of fact, Moses is physically changed by it, at least temporarily, in that God's glory actually begins to be seen to emanate from Moses' own face. What an amazing picture of what happens when we are in proximity with the living God. Again, it is impossible that, but that such a thing should happen. But as wonderful as that is, and it truly is wonderful, There is something even better and something that we now ourselves get to participate in that is more lasting, in fact it is permanent, and even more glorious. 
There is a real and lasting spiritual transformation that is to be worked by the Holy Spirit in all those who behold the Lord Jesus Christ in truth. And this, no mere fading away in temporary situation, is a permanent transformation that is the, the birthright and ultimate destiny of every one of the elect children of God. And in all this, besides the amazing and extremely powerful implications that it is for us as we are transformed into the, the same image, as we shall see, we are reminded also about the nature of the living God whom we serve, and that his glory is the true glory and the true light of the universe. Well, children, the sermon title tonight is easy. It is light, light. And there are, I, therefore, I hope you'll forgive the longer points. Point one is God's glory is light. Point two, the temporary transfer. And three, the permanent transformation. So God's glory is light, the temporary transfer, the permanent transformation. So first, God's glory is true light. And let me say from the outset, to deal with this subject adequately, we're only partially spending our time in Exodus chapter 34, we're spending our time in a lot of other places in Scripture, particularly on this first point. Now, what I want us to understand by this as we read it is something about the nature of God, and particularly for him to have proper place and prominence relative to his creation. And so we have to think, which is prior, which is more significant, which is better, which is more beautiful, which is more real? God's glory or physical light. All right, so let's consider these things. Ezekiel 1.27. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Do you want to know what the glory of God is like? That is what it is like. And in doing so, he has to take from the entire arsenal of the language of, of his, to his language, of the language of the Hebrews, and likewise we must take from all the, the, the sort of words that we might have to describe various forms of light. Because it is not merely one form of light. It is all of these things. It is a kind of light that you see in a wonderful gemstone on the one hand. It is also like the light that you see in a rainbow. And we know how that one form of light, the sunlight, is split into its constituent frequencies and to be seen in a different way, its its inherent beauty and, and, and so forth. Well, God's glory is like that all at the same time. You come into the presence of the living God and it's all of that. It does it's not just one, it is all of those things. The appearance of fire, we know the beauty of fire. And this too is part of what we see when we see the living God. It's the glory of God. That's the root of it. And that helps us to explain then what we find in the transfiguration. You understand that Jesus Christ came in the state of humiliation and that his glory was veiled. It's in fact an important understanding. His glory is is veiled as he came to us. But for a moment it was unveiled at the transfiguration. What do we see in Matthew 17? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Remember, there are only a few. 
Back then, it was only Moses who was admitted into this supreme uh, privilege of seeing the living God in his glory. Now, they were up to three. And they come before uh, Jesus Christ himself. And John, his brethren, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And we see again that the only likeness that we have, like the sun, like these natural things that are types and point to the reality of what is the real thing, the glory of God. And all that required, it wasn't that something was added to Christ, it was that for a moment the veil was taken away in order that his glory might shine through in its transcendent power. And so likewise, this is the consistent picture of Scripture. It's not a one-off. It's not just one image among others. When we consider the glory of God, it always looks like this. So it is in Revelation 1. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ as he appears in the Isle of Patmos to, uh, to, to John. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as it were, refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the light shining in its strength. His countenance, what's on his face, is like the sun shining in its strength. But even that is not a, again, a, not a unitary picture. There's also head and hair that are white like wool, white as snow, eyes like the flame of fire, feet like fine brasses refined in a furnace. All of these things in all the ways that you can possibly have beautiful, multivariant light in this world. So Christ is like that all at once, all at once. Now, God's glory is this true light, and it is therefore ultimate light unlike say the sun in Isaiah 60 verse 19 this is the prophecy of what will happen in the new heavens and the new earth like so much of the latter part of Isaiah the sun shall no longer be your light by day of course we regard such a thing as as horrible in our current situation we're so desperately dependent upon the sun the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. Again, which is a, a mirror, for the, a, a sort of a dim mirror for the sun. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your morning shall be ended." Sometimes people wonder or worry about the fact that the, the, the sun itself has a finite amount of fuel in it. It's true. And given to itself over a long, 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 long period of time, it will eventually wear out, run out of fuel, and, and die off. Um, but thankfully, that's not a problem in God's universe because it was never, ever designed to be ultimate or permanent. It is here for a time to serve a purpose, and then it goes away. What is ultimate and what is final is the glory of God, which is that true light. And it is an everlasting light. The Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your God your glory. There is no other glory to be found than that of God. So all other light is a lesser type or shadow of it. God's glory is true light. Okay, now with that background, let's go to our second point. The temporary transfer. Again, we're speaking of light. There is a temporary transfer that is in scene 
here in Exodus 34. I'll read in verse 28. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And what we find then is that the light is temporarily transferred to Moses. Now, it is of this particular kind of light that it's not merely the momentary reflected glory, as if you had a light and pointed it at a mirror, and the mirror then very briefly reflects that light. But apparently for those who are there long enough in the presence of God, their face is made to shine even after, after they've left God's immediate presence. Now, that's more like um, maybe the, the luminescent dial of a good watch. It has something that's slightly radioactive on it, but it needs to be, as it were, recharged by photons maybe from the sun or a strong light. And you know how that is. You shine that light on it, and then, and then it's very bright again, or like a compass. And that's the kind of situation that is being spoken of, that the, the, the supreme source of light imparts then to Moses something so that his face now radiates with the glory of God for a time. So that light is temporarily transferred to Moses, and we know it's coming to an end. It doesn't remain that way forever. And likewise, the fear of God is temporarily transferred to Moses. Very interesting, isn't it? So in verse 30, when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. That includes, again, Aaron, uh, ever a man of the people. And he is likewise afraid of this. And why is that, friends? Why is that, beloved, that, that they would be afraid when they see this brilliant thing on the face of Moses? Isn't it a matter of curiosity? Aren't they, isn't this something that would actually attract them? You would think so. But no, because this particular light, this glowing on Moses' face is actually the effulgence of the, of the actual glory of God. They react just the way they would were God's glory to be among them in some other way, in God's presence. They don't like it. And their response is like the response of every sinful man and woman who ever experiences God's glory, which is to want to run away and hide. Because for sinful people, they don't like the glory of God. They don't welcome the light. They are like those diseased people that have photophobia. And we, we know that's a symptom of some sort of problem. If people don't want to be in the light and they, they want to be in dark rooms, that's a problem. But so is the disease of fallen mankind and our sin. that We don't like God's light. And we will hide from the glory. And so it was in Peter when, when God's glory is seen, this time not in physical terms, because again, at that point, Jesus Christ's glory is, is veiled. But even in his work, In bringing about that miraculous catch of fish, Peter realizes just a minute, oh, I think I know who this is. And what does he do? He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. Because how can sinners and a glorious holy God coexist? They can't. And they know that by instinct. And they flee from the light like creatures of the night, like like cockroaches when the lights are turned on. So this fear is temporarily transferred to Moses. Now, Moses calls to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them, and afterward the children of Israel came near, and he gave them the commandments 
of all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. But he comes up with a solution for this problem, this difficulty of them being fearful of beholding this glory that is coming from his face that so frightens him as it reminds him of the, of the God who gave him that glory. And the solution is to wear a veil. Is to wear a veil. Verse 33, And when Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the condescension of Moses towards the people. You remember, of course, when the people had said before, please, you talk to us. Don't let this God talk to us. He's frightening, and we, he's going to, we're going to die if we're around him. And so, quite to the contrary of what sometimes people think about Moses, you know, it's not just that people think of the God of the Old Testament as being some ogre, which is so utterly false, they, they likewise think that Moses was some horrible tyrant, but he's not. He's actually extremely compassionate and very patient with these people. Everyone has their, their limits, I suppose, but this man was, as we know, the most humble of all men. And so he, in his condescension and, and compassion to the people, even facilitate this, this scruple of those and it willing to put a veil on his face just because they're fearful of him. Well, I guess that solves the problem because this, and by the way, it's a temporary problem. Why? Because in time, that was going to go away. It's only worked, again, like the face of the watch or of the compass, so long as there was the source to charge it. And over time, day by day, this, this glow, this, this radiance would diminish until it went away entirely. And he wouldn't have to wear a veil anymore because this was only a temporary transfer of the glory of God onto Moses. But this points to something better, which is our third point about light, which is the permanent transformation. And for this now, we turn to 2 Corinthians 3. As we've already read, but I'm going to read it again. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Let me stop right there. To say the ministry of death was glorious. How was it the ministry of death? Because it was a ministry primarily of the law. There is nothing wrong with the law itself. The law is true as God is true. The law is holy as God is holy. The reason why it's the ministry of death is because men are sinners. And so we fundamentally could not possibly keep this law. And therefore the giving of that law, the writing of those ten commandments, a law that was already written on the hearts of every man, woman, and child from the beginning of creation, as he comes down the mountain with that law written on stone, it is a ministration of death. Inasmuch as the law is made even this much clearer than what they already knew, they are accountable, and so likewise the standards to which they are kept are, are greater, and their judgment and condemnation is more sure. And these things indeed all amount to the summary that Paul gives to it. It is a ministry of death. Now that doesn't mean that the ministry wasn't in some way glorious. It was. And that's what Paul is pointing us to. The fact is, 
that even in the midst of giving this, it was not life-giving in itself. It pointed beyond itself, yes. But even in the ministration of this, there was glory to be seen. And Moses' face was shining. It was a glory that was passing away. He says, well, if that's the case, surely you would think then, if that was the case for, for that which came first and, and was not final, that which was not saving but actually was the ministration of death, how much more glorious is it now? It's going to be glorious. And this is an important part of our logic, right? There's no part of what happened in the Old Testament that is not better for us today, all right? So get that kind of settled in your mind. Whatever was good in the Old Testament is even better for God's people now. And so if the ministry of death was glorious, so much more the ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit, because this is God's own Spirit. And as we're finding out in, the, in, in Acts Acts is the story of the pouring out of the, the Holy Spirit and of his amazing work. And the ministry of the Spirit truly is glorious. And it makes all of those things, yes, with their outward glory, appear as nothing. But what it says is this. For if the ministry of the condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because the glory that excels. Meaning in, com- in comparison, it's absolutely nothing. Again, you can take that reflected glory of, of the watch, and in the noonday sun, it doesn't look like anything. And he's saying that that's the sort of situation we have now in the spirit, the very source of it, the ultimate rather than the, the uh, intermediate. Or what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. And that is so true. Well, what is he talking about? He's talking about... The transformation that happens to God's people in the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. And let me again think about the difference between what I do as a preacher today and what Moses did back then. The people were living in fear, and rightly so. They were in constant danger. They, they desperately needed him to intercede. Now, that's, that's the same, but any remembrance or any reminder of the holiness of God was fearful to them, and so he had to put on a veil. Instead, I boldly declare in an entirety the gospel because it is life-giving to you. And, and rather than having something which you don't have, I'm conveying to you that which God freely gives to us all, a sight of Jesus Christ, the image of the living God. And that's the way it goes. I'll, I'll just keep reading. For their minds were blinded. That's the problem. The fundamental problem with them was not that they didn't have the word of God, but their minds were blinded because the Spirit hadn't worked on them. Anything like what he is working on God's people today. Their minds were blinded for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. So they're not able to see Christ. Christ was there in the Old Testament. Christ was there in the, even in the law, but they couldn't see it. There's a veil there. It's a double veil. That Moses has to veil the, the glory even of his ministrations, and the people have a veil in their hearts so they don't see what's there. Things are very different today. And nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Remember the true liberty is certainly the freedom to believe and the freedom to obey the living God. And even so, as they had escaped from Pharaoh, yet there was a veil on their hearts 
which actually kept them from true liberty, and they remained under the bondage of the law for a time. But now the Spirit of God works freely, sent out in all the world in all of his glory. And then in verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now you have to grasp all this. You understand what I'm saying? Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, meaning that there is a, there's a, a glass by which you can see Christ. You can't see him directly, but you can see him in the means of grace. So even as I lift up this word of God to you, and my little plaque here says, Sir, we would see Jesus. You actually do see Christ. Now, who is Christ? Why, well, he's the image of the invisible God. That's what Colossians 1.15 says. And so you are beholding as in a mirror, meaning the means of grace, the glory of the Lord. And so I'm, I'm here, as it were, with a Bible in my face, like this, speaking to you the words of God, and you're beholding me. But what you really get is Christ. And you're being transformed into the same image. Now, if Christ himself is the image of the invisible God, you're being transformed likewise into that image. Now, that's an amazing thing. Again, to use the natural analogy which God in his, in his wisdom has set up, you know that light is transformative and that light leaves an image. We're speaking of that. The image that is on the, the media of a camera, it changes it as the light reaches it. And so Christ himself, he's the image by which we are now looking at the living God. And as that light reaches us, it changes us and eventually give it enough time. Not only do our faces radiate, as with Moses, but we are utterly spiritually transformed into the same image. Right? Now that means that when this work is finally done, we will be every bit as holy, every bit as perfect, and share in the same kind of glory as Jesus Christ himself. Now, we'll never be the Son of God, but we'll be the Bride of Christ. And isn't it the thing that the husband has the, the honor and privilege of bestowing upon the wife whatever he has? We've seen that, that kind of typology in, in sort of the history of the way royalty works. That's changing now, but it has always been the case that... The, the husband, if he's the prince, he's the king, bestows every bit on whomever he marries. So he can marry a commoner. And the next thing you know, she's a princess, and soon enough, she's to become the queen of the realm. Well, that happens, you see, in reality, pointing us to Jesus Christ, who bestows everything that he himself has. Now, there are some things he cannot possibly communicate in that he is eternal. will never be eternal. But... He is everlasting and he does communicate that to us. We can be everlasting and we will be. Um, he is sinless. He communicates that to us. We will be sinless. Uh, he has perfect righteousness. And he communicates that to us, imputed to us. Um, he's perfectly glorious. Friends, that will be us in heaven, you understand. Right? That, that kind of glory that Jesus Christ has, that resurrected glorious body in which... If we were to see, we would all just fall down and worship. That's the same sort of reality that we have. And it's not about an outward trick by which we have some sort of LED lights on our, our clothing or something. 
It's the inward reality of actually having that holiness imparted to us. Because that's what he does in this work. My friends, that's something. All right, that's a little bit better than what Moses had. That permanent and lasting transformation is the supreme of, of all of it. The whole, you want to know what it's all about, that's what it's about. The whole work of redemption is getting not just sheep that are still dirty and smelly, but of transforming it into that, that image of Christ, as, it, as Christ is the image of God. Now, how do we apply this light? This light is extremely powerful, it's extremely beautiful, it's efficacious. What do we do about it? Well, number one, we pray that the veil would be taken away, right? We heard there is such a veil on people who don't believe, principally the Jews. And we know in the larger Catechism 191, what do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and of Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, and the Jews called. We pray that the veil would be taken away from their hearts and that the gospel would be received in faith by God's covenant people according to the flesh. But the next sentence, of course, the next phrase, and that is the Gentiles. Not only that the, the uh, Jews called, but the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenance and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed, made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins, to the confirming, comforting, and building up of those who are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming, and so on. All this requires that the veil be taken away because wherever the light goes, and if I shine the light of the gospel into any one of you, it works. You go from death to life immediately. You're sustained in your life and you're made more and more to become like the image that I'm pointing at you. But some may have a veil and you have a shield put up in front of you. And so therefore the light cannot reach your heart. What we pray is that the veil would be taken away from your hearts and therefore the light of the gospel reaching you as well as those who are outside. And pray that the veil be taken away. Secondly, I want us to understand that the sun is provisional, non-essential. It's provisional. There will not always be a sun in this world. There will be light. In fact, a much better light after it's gone. We know from Revelation 22.5, There shall be no night there. They knew no light nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. There will not always be a sun. There was not always a sun before. There was though light before there was a sun, and there was better light before there was a sun. The sun itself is temporary and provisional, passing away. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. There was no sun until day three. And friends, some, some find this to be some, uh, as it were, a contradiction that makes a, a straightforward understanding of these things impossible. But friends, God doesn't need a sun to make light. 
The sun is merely a picture and type, physically, of God himself in his glory. The source of light was there, and at the moment of creation, all he does, as it were, unveils himself. Let there be light, and God's glory irradiates the entire universe. And then he makes a sun to be kind of sort of like the way he is, in the brightness and brilliance and source of light and life and warmth. And in various ways, much better than anything we can do, none of the light that we can create will ever be as good as sunlight. But it's still not as good as the real thing. It was light before, and there will be light after. So don't prioritize and assign to the sun a place that God himself does not give it. The sun is provisional. Now I'm going to give a series of things having to do with how we're going to get, how we need to get what we want, which is we want to be transformed into that image, right? So how are we going to do? Uh, Mark, we pray, is uh, maybe he's going to Marine Corps Officer Candidate School uh, this summer. And one of the things they try to do, whether at, at boot camp at Paris Island or OCS, is to transform nasty civilians into Marines. And they have a way of doing that. And a lot of it, though, has to do with spending a lot of personal time with those who are Marines, drill instructors. And they get up close and in your face in order to make that transformation happen. Well, beloved, that's a much lesser transformation than what we're talking about here. And so what is it that we need to do in order to be transformed into the image of Christ? Well, I'm going to use um, some, some play on words on this. And first of all... Uh, get lots of sun on Sunday. All right, that's the beauty of Sunday, is that we can get the sun. And he is seen in the means of grace. And it is accomplished through the work of the Spirit, but this is God's appointed day for it, and we should make the most of it. All right, the reality is the rest of our week is pretty busy. And we all bemoan the fact that we don't have enough time at our leisure to spend time with our Lord and to bask in his radiance. This is your day to do it. He protects it. He gives you the time in order because he wants health, not just healthy sheep. He wants radi- a radiant bride, full of, you know, just full of his glory and without any spot or wrinkle whatsoever. And so he wants us to get plenty of his sunlight on this the day. And so we come to both services, morning and evening. And we receive the word of God for all that it's worth. Because I know, we're speaking of the veil. It's not just the veil that happens if we're not regenerate. For some of us, we just can't maintain attention long enough to receive the the light of Christ's glory and the means of grace. We've got to work on it. Children, it's, it's not that church prepares you for school. School prepares you for church. And that's the wonderful thing. If you're made to sit for a long, long period of time to receive useful knowledge about this world, that is good. Because in that, it prepares you to sit here and receive what is even more important, the word of God. But if we're bored, allow ourselves to be that. And believe me, it is always up to us whether we're bored about anything. It is possible to be utterly interested in anything. If you want to be. And this is the thing that above all we should be most interested in. But inasmuch as we don't pay attention, the sunlight doesn't do us any good. And you meet sheep that are like that. And that they have, uh, have sort of turned away from the sunlight, even physically, in the midst of, of sermons. And they don't want to hear these things after a while. 
And they only receive enough to keep them barely alive. And years and years later, they're pretty much the same as they were. Friends, you don't want to be like that. I hope you want to be beautiful. I hope you want to to have that radiance of God's light upon you and to be transformed by it. And you have to receive it completely. No sunblock. So get lots of sun on Sunday. Get some sun also during the week. Okay? Now, I know that it's not a day we don't have as much time given to us, but just the same, we should get some sun during the week if we don't want to be... We, we, isn't it a beautiful typology, you know, that God has required for us to need sun, to need sunlight to be healthy. And if we don't have sunlight, we won't be healthy. Uh, I understand that there's a phenomenon which some children are getting some particular disease, or, I forget what it, sorry, what it might be, for lack of sunlight because parents are now so picky about uh, skin damage. Now, we ought to be. You know, we shouldn't let our kids, you know, get some horrible sunburn or something. But some parents have gotten so picky about that that they don't, their children don't get enough sun at all, and, and therefore they're, they're getting some sort of disease. The, the point of all this is to say Sunday's probably not quite enough. As much as you're going to get on that one day of the week, you need more. And that's why we have quiet times. Right? That's why we spend our time with day-by-day devotion uh, to the Lord. Because as with Moses, again, exposure, time counts. Remember, how long was he there? 40 days and 40 nights. So how long does it take you, for instance, to be in the sun before you glow with that sunburn, which I believe is actually a picture of what we're talking about. Eventually you will glow with a sunburn. How long does it take you? It's not 10 minutes, I'll tell you that. So how long is it going to take you to be in the word of God before you glow with the glory of God? It's probably a little bit longer. I'm not going to dictate that time because I don't want to be a hypocrite myself. I know good and well that we all have a ways to grow in these things. I'm just saying the reality of it, which is if we want that glow and if we want that benefit, we have to give some time to it. There must be exposure time involved. And then fifthly and finally, don't cover up. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth, that phenomenon that we saw with the Israelites of people being uncomfortable with one who emanates the glory of God, that was not just back then. That was not just about the physical manifestation of someone glowing with the glory of God. That is what happens today. Inasmuch as you resemble the living God, inasmuch as you reflect his holiness, inasmuch as you reflect even moderately some element of his glory, people will not be comfortable with you because they are in darkness, they love darkness, And they're uncomfortable with the light. And so people are not comfortable with godly Christian people. They're just too different. It just reminds them of the the coming judgment of the God that they hate. And they don't want to be around you. That's reality. So what is our response? The, The thing, we can't control that, what they do. We can only control what we do. And what are the, what are the response, what can we do? Well, option A is to cover up is to conceal what makes us different, to put a veil, a burqa on us, and make us blend in in some way or another with the world, maybe like a camouflage burqa that's colored like the world is. And so people don't notice that we're really Christians and different, and and we don't make them uncomfortable anymore. That's not a good option. That's, That's the response of weakness, not of love, nor of loyalty to the God that we serve. The response that Jesus wants us to have is like this in Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world. 
A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they, do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about his people that he knew good and well would have the tendency to want to hide their light because they don't like the uncomfortable response that it prompts in people. But he says, don't do that. It is possible to want to conceal your light, not entirely. It doesn't always work as well as you might think, but don't even try. It's pointless. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the outcome of these things. So inasmuch as we benefit from the word of God and are made different and are changed into the image of Christ through it, don't conceal it, don't cover it up. Let yourself be as you are, the light of the world. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we bow before you in your perfect wisdom and your glory which is so supremely glorious And everything that we've ever experienced is as nothing in your presence. And Lord, we know that even we ourselves, were we to see you in all of your glory, that we would cower and we would be beside ourselves. And Heavenly Father, we do pray that in your goodness and kindness that the the light of Christ would come to us and that the image would be burned upon us that the means of grace would be as pure as possible. The word of God, the whole counsel of God would come upon us. And that, Lord, you would help us to spend a little bit more time this week in the word of God. That we'd be there long enough to actually have that glow on our skin of having received of your good things. And, Lord, that thereafter we would not cover up and conceal, but, Lord, rather that we would be the light of the world that you have called us to be. And all these things to your glory and to our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.